0: And they don't know this yet, but I plan to make... (laughs) Well, they do now. They do now.
1: (laughs) Every single one of them is listening to this. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by where our summer went. Man, it seems like this summer, at least here in Boston, has been incredibly uh, rainy and then sometimes cool. And it just doesn't feel like we have had a summer. But summer is not what we are here to talk about. But it does explain why it is that we have some guests hosts on this episode. So for the next couple of episodes, we're going to have some guest hosts because it's summertime and people are traveling and it's a vacation time. So Let me introduce everyone. I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And we have two fantastic guests today. The first is Dr. Bertha Hidalgo from the University of Alabama. Welcome Bertha.
0: Thank you for having me and Rachel.
1: (laughs) And the second is Dr. Rachel Whittem from the University of Minnesota. Welcome Rachel.
2: Thanks so much, Matt. It's great to be here.
1: And as a reminder, if you can head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. You'll find a lot of really interesting population health programs and tools there. And then as another reminder, if you can uh, go on over to your favorite podcast app and give us a rating on your, your favorite app, we would very much appreciate it because it helps other people find the show. And before we go on, I do want to note that we had someone write in with a correction for us. So Dr. Jor Halvorsen from the Department of Psychology at the Norwegian University of Science Technology wrote to us about the episode that we did on on MDMA and uh, noted that at one point, we Don, in his discussion, referenced a figure in the manuscript where you can extract information regarding relapse rate in the MDMA condition. And he wasn't able to find that, and so asked us where that was. It turns out that the reason he couldn't find it is because it wasn't there. So Don had misinterpreted part of Figure three, relapse and remission got confused. So, just wanted to point that out and thank you to Dr. Halverson for pointing that out to us. So, now on to the show. So, today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study that talked about whether or not having a birthday predicted having. COVID infection within a family. Then in the second part of the program, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about teaching epidemiology online. And then in our third segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or things that we just found super interesting. So let's get into segment one, where we are going to talk about an article that looked at the effect of or or whether or not birthdays predict having COVID. This was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it was entitled Assessing the Association Between Social Gatherings and COVID-19 Risk Using Birthdays by first author Christopher Whaley of the RAND Corporation in Santa Monica, California. Let me give you a few headlines on this. So uh, Scientific American says children's birthdays may have spread COVID infections. Maybe, maybe not. Times Live says cake in the face. Birthdays push up COVID risk by 30%. MSN says cake candles and coronavirus, how birthdays increase risk of COVID outbreaks. And Newsweek says kids' parties letting guard down played role in COVID spikes during the pandemic. So we can suss out whether or not we think those are really truly what the article tells us. But Rachel, can you start off by talking us through this article and, and telling us what they did and what they found?
2: Sure. So first, I just thought that we could do a little visualization here. Berta, would you like doing a visualization with me? Sure. Okay, I want you to close your eyes, and I'm going to take you back to a better place. The year is 2019, and it's your oldest son's birthday. What's going on? What are you guys doing today?
0: Oh, gosh. Uh, We started out with... A donut cake so we oh my gosh towered donut towered donuts his favorite donuts put a candle on it we took him to his favorite restaurant to eat and uh, had cupcakes at his baseball game because his birthday is early june and we're still deep into baseball season for them mm.
2: nice nice so i'm what i'm hearing is you were Going places, you were seeing people, you were with family, maybe with some friends. You even had a candle that he could blow out. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds amazing. So, you know, I was reading the New York Times reporting of this article, and something that struck me was that the senior author... Jaina mentioned that this article was actually inspired by his daughter, who had a birthday during COVID, and how she had wanted a birthday party and and couldn't have one because you know we were we were all trying or a lot of us were trying to be really careful. So he started thinking about this issue and sort of thinking about the impact of uh, small social gatherings and sort of private social gatherings on the transmission of COVID. And, you know, something else that really struck me about this article is I was remembering back to kind of late 2020, and there was a lot of discussion about whether the policies that communities were putting in place really mattered, because there was this counter argument that people were having small social gatherings anyway, they were going to do it no matter what. So why are we bothering with closing schools or making people wear masks or having capacity limits on restaurants because people are going to be doing what they want in their own houses anyway and that's what's primarily driving covid transmission that was a, that was an argument that i was hearing a lot so mm, me too. so yeah i think that i think this was a really interesting idea to sort of take a look at at least a piece of that question certainly not all of it and i was really excited to see this article because this is this is just, I mean, first of all, I want to say, I love this article. It Me was too. beautifully designed mm-hmm. and absolutely beautifully written, so clear, you you knew exactly what they were doing, exactly what their exposures, their outcomes were. It was so nicely done. And I love these situations where someone notices something a little bit funny and you can kind of take advantage of it. you know, you can do you can take advantage of this natural experiment to answer a larger question. So let's get into it. What was the problem? The problem was they were interested in learning about how small household social gatherings were contributing to COVID transmission. And, you know, there's been a problem all along where it's really difficult to know how the different things that we do as individuals, communities, or even policy-wise are impacting COVID because Lots of stuff is going on at the same time. Policies are coming into place at the same time. People are sort of voluntarily changing their behavior. And it's really hard to, to tease all these different things out. So even something like small gatherings, if you were to say, well, uh, there's holiday season. Let's see how, you know, maybe maybe around Christmas time or, or the winter holidays, people are gathering more in their households. Let's look at that time of the year. But of course, that's confounded with time of the year. And we know there's seasonality things going on. So it's just a really difficult thing to take a look at. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So,
2: you know, they were like, well, what about birthdays? Birthdays should be pretty randomly distributed through the year. It's not like certain types of people are more likely to have certain types of birthday timing. Well, actually, let me ask you guys this question. (laughs) Matt and Berta, do you believe in astrology?
1: Uh, uh, that's a, a no from me, but I, <laughs> I, I want to say that I apologize to the many students who I have interacted with recently who very, very much do believe.
2: So uh, you don't? Th- oh, go ahead. You, you you're you're nodding your head. No, too Virgil. You don't think that, say, somebody who's born in the summer might like swimming? more than someone who's born in the winter. You don't you don't think that the no, time not. that you're you're born you don't think that it has anything you don't think that someone who's a a Sagittarius might be more of a heavy breather than someone who's a Capricorn.
0: <laughs> because no, this is I what you not. need to
2: believe. You need to you need to like not believe in astrology in any way shape or form for this for this paper to be valid. And I'll say I I I generally I I generally think that probably the the time of the year you're born in most ways and in most important ways and in most ways that are relevant to this paper probably doesn't matter. You're probably not more likely to be a hugger if you're an Aquarius, I I don't think. So like I said, I, I love this sort of thing. I love natural experiments. We all know that RCTs are wonderful, they're magical because randomizing people, you know, flipping a coin decouples that exposure from all the confounders that we're worried about. There's no particular reason why if you're assigning exposure by some sort of random process that you'd have, you know, more people living in Georgia in the exposed group than the unexposed group. But you don't really need a a random event to assign exposure and have this magic happen. You can have something like, you know, birthdays aren't entirely random, but they they should be pretty decoupled from all of confounders that we're worried about. So so this is a a great way to take a situation where we can't do an RCT and see how these exposures relate to the outcomes. Birthdays are great because they are always found in the electronic medical record in the EMR, and they're probably pretty validly recorded. So the idea is that there are going to be more social gatherings in a household during a person's birth week. You can almost see this, this analysis as almost an instrumental variable kind Mm -hmm. of situation. Having a a birthday is a proxy. They're seeing it as a proxy for social gatherings. So what do they do? There's this group that I hadn't heard of before, Castlight Health Insurance. Castlight is a company that provides health navigation services for 200 employers across the U.S. And they have a large database. Castlight provides services across industries. These companies range in size. So there's a, a fair amount of you know, diversity within their sample. And in their database, they have electronic medical record information and the people can be linked. So you kind of can tell from their database who's in the same household. So that's that's pretty important. And the authors used uh, census data, the American Community Survey, to check to make sure that this database was decently representative. So what are their outcomes? The outcomes are icd 10 codes that are associated with COVID diagnosis, and these have pretty good sensitivity and specificity. The time period that they're looking for is the two-week window after there was a birthday in the household. They also did um, what they're calling a falsification analysis where they're also going to check in the four and eight weeks prior to that birthday for COVID diagnoses or, or, or interaction, I should say, with the healthcare system for COVID. And they also did another sort of interesting thing where they kind of randomly assigned people birthdays, not the actual birthdays they had, to see if they were still getting some sort of results to to sort of do another check. So for their analysis, they um, used a linear probability model because they had all of these fixed effects in their model. And their preference would have been logistic regression, but it was just breaking. So why did they have a gazillion fixed effects in their model? They indicated which county this household was in, and there's over 2,000 counties. And they also indicated which week of the year they were looking at. And what they ended up doing was they took these county week sort of connections. So you know, if your birthday was on, I don't know, January 5th, and you lived in Hennepin County, you would be that would be the first week of the year in Hennepin County, and they made deciles of COVID prevalence for each county week group, so that they could do their analysis, looking at whether there was more effect in a county week where there was a lot of COVID versus a county week where there wasn't as much COVID. So hopefully, hopefully, what I just said made sense. It's mm-hmm. a little bit, a little bit tricky there. <laughs> So basically what they ended up doing, the the comparison that they're actually looking at is, does having a birthday in your household increase risk over another household that was in a similar county week that didn't have a birthday in it? Does your household have more of a risk of, of having a COVID diagnosis if you happen to have a birthday? They also did a a whole bunch of interesting subgroup analyses. They were interested in whether milestone birthdays might have had a greater effect, you know, turning 40 or turning 70. They were interested in whether there was more effect in counties that were Democratic leaning versus Republican leaning. Uh, They looked at weather, you know, if it was bad weather or rainy or something like that, potentially because you were more likely to have your birthday party inside. And they also looked at kid birthdays, which I thought was Really important. My son has had a birthday party every single year. I
0: <laughs>
2: at <laughs> Less my <likely>. age <laughs>
0: you
2: know, like, We don't I don't have a birthday. I'm sorry, Matt and bird. I don't have a birthday party with candles every single year <laughs> anymore. Neither so I. I, <laughs> I think that was really good that they that they looked at that. And they also did some adjustment for household size and whether there were kids in the household. So what did they find? they found that there was increased risk if you had a birthday in your household. There was even more increased risk if it was a kid birthday. Interestingly, a lot of these subgroup analyses, they didn't see anything interesting going on. So there was not more risk in Republican versus Democratic counties. There was not more risk if the weather was bad. There was not more risk if it was a milestone birthday so you know i, I think that there's a, a lot of interesting things that we can take away from both the main analysis and the subgroup analysis one and the authors sort of you know hit on this in the discussion that it seems like everyone's having birthday parties <laughs> whether you're in a place where there's a lot of restrictions or whether there's not or whether you're in a democratic county or not you know this effect held true for their entire sample. And it does seem like these small group gatherings, these birthday parties, did increase COVID risk. And I should say, in the deciles where there was a lot of COVID transmission already. So if there wasn't much COVID in your county, you know, it makes sense. You're not increasing your risk too much by having a birthday party. But when you're in those upper deciles, it seemed like having a birthday did increase risk.
1: Yeah, it seemed like it, it seemed like it it made quite a difference, which I thought was really really cool. So that was that was an excellent explanation of what they did in this study, and I will just confess that I also thought this was a fantastic study and I really enjoyed reading this. Berta, what was your take on this study?
0: I also really liked it and when it first came out and I started to hear about it in the news, in, in some ways, it confirmed some of the biases that I had about mm-hmm. what I saw anecdotally happening in my community. I think the other really important thing to consider, especially w- with what we're facing now, is that this was done in the context of the ancestral strain of SARS-CoV-2, right? And the way that SARS-CoV-2 appeared to spread through our population appeared to vary by age as well. And I think something that I thought would be an additional interesting analysis to include in this paper, although they did so much already, was that I didn't get a sense about where people were having these birthdays. And I think that's also an important component. So, for example, if we were to celebrate my kid's birthday in Los Angeles, where their grandparents live, the entire party would be held outside because... Their home is smaller, right? So if we're going to have a lot of people or even if it's just us, it's more comfortable to set up a table where we can all sit outdoors in their back patio as opposed to, you know, indoors in the really tiny dining room that they have. The weather also matters too, right? Which they sort of got at in this paper: as if it's really cold, then you were probably more likely to be indoors celebrating. So, overall, I thought it was a really well-designed paper. I was mad I didn't think of it myself.
1: I know, <laughs> because so it's true. such a
0: practical, like, idea. You know, that has so much relevance to what we do day in and day out in in our lives. But yeah, I, I I definitely wondered about that. And then, of course, you're really only capturing a population that's insured, right? So what are the implications or generalizations to populations without insurance? If I were a grad student reading this paper, I would focus in on that limitation section, which I also thought was really well written. I thought they gave really extensive thought to what was lacking or what they couldn't capture in the paper. As a grad student, I would read that section and think, what else can I do or what else should we be looking at? What can we consider as we try and expand on this idea?
1: And do you think, I'm curious, so this was done by somebody at the Rand Corporation, which, I, I, so you said, you know, you're, you're sort of annoyed you didn't think of it yourself. I wondered, I mean, this is, as Rachel said, this is essentially an instrumental variable. And, you know, Rand, I think of the, you know, sort of the economics side of things, and they think of instrumental variables all the time. And I wonder whether that's the reason why, you know, given our training as epidemiologists, we don't think in terms of instrumental variables nearly as much as economists do. And I wonder if that's why, you know, this was much more natural for, for the author, for the lead yeah, author.
0: Maybe. That's very possible. I don't know.
1: Yeah. No, it's just speculation on my part. Rachel, what about you? What's your What did you think in terms of the quality of this study and what what jumped out at you?
2: I thought it was a great study. There were two things I was thinking about after it. The first is something that I think Matt and Berta, you could probably speak to far more than I can. But just I know this has been an idea for a long time with. STI is that there's this phenomenon that people think like, well, it's not in my group, you know? And I was thinking a little bit more about how even the Democratic counties, you know, people that are probably taking a lot of precautions in other aspects of their lives you know, there's just always this idea that's like, well, it's it's just my family. It's just my friends. You know, like, we don't really have COVID. And that this is something that is common to the way, you know, people that study behaviors and other infectious diseases kind of see things. The other thing I was thinking about, and this is something that just comes to my mind as a, as a policy researcher, an epidemiologist that studies policies, is that A point that I think was here that the authors didn't make was that in counties where there wasn't much transmission, having a party didn't make a big difference. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to this original question where people are like, these policies are rotten. Why are we keeping kids home from school? Why are we making people wear masks? All the transmissions happening in households. The thing is, the way it gets to households is because people picked it up somewhere else. And the way people pick things up somewhere else is when it's generally circulating in the community because we don't have other precautions set up. So I thought that was also, it's not necessarily something that they could have directly tested, but mm-hmm. I thought that there was sort of a policy, a potentially a policy subtext takeaway here that, you know, it, it it's not that bad to have a social gathering in a situation where COVID is otherwise being well controlled.
0: Or that the risk is generally lower, right? I mean, we're talking about the chances that you'll get something at Mm -hmm. any given time. And so the chances or odds of risk is lower if, as you said, in general, there's, there's just a lot less virus circulating. And the way we get less virus circulating is by putting all these things in place. And so I think that's a really hard concept for people to understand in the context that you just alluded to, Rachel, which is that people do tend to be or feel safer around their friends and family. And that birthdays, the other reason I thought this was such a great idea is because birthdays are really important to people. And often it's the one time a year where people gather in addition to, you know, holidays, potentially and if you notice while yes the milestone birthdays when kids are younger are important i think the kids demand more as they get older too right in terms of celebrations and gatherings with their friends and so yep. so that also matters it confounds the relationship to some extent
1: it's so it's so interesting because there were sort of two things that jumped out to me and they they relate to the first one relates to something you just said which is it seems to me you're both sort of in agreement with this idea that if if there's if there's less risk then it is safer you know if there's less covid circulating then, then having a birthday party is less likely to lead to a large increase in in risk of COVID with transmission within a household. And that is, I mean, that makes sense to me. And that is certainly true. But the the, the sort of the question that I wonder about is, does that imply that if COVID is, is not really circulating in your area or prevalence or you know, incidence is fairly low, therefore, go ahead and have a birthday party because the risk is low? And I'm not sure that the second part follows because... As you say, they stratified this by decile of how much COVID was COVID prevalence in the area. So the lowest decile means very little COVID spreading, and the highest meaning the most COVID spreading. And and what they found was the the increase in risk is lowest in places where there's less prevalence. Well, that makes perfect sense, but if you increase it a little bit in those areas with low prevalence, you are then spreading you know transmitting infection and and continuing the cycle such that you eventually get to become you know potentially a high prevalent setting so I, even though the risk is is lower in those low prevalent settings i don't think the message is therefore you know it's it's perfectly fine to have a birthday party celebration in areas where prevalence is low i'm not sure if if you all would agree with that
0: oh yeah i mean i think the message is It's safer given that you still have NPIs in place, right? So, mitigation strategies. Yes, exactly. So, that you still have the distancing, that you still have the hand washing, that you're prioritizing outdoors. All of those things need to remain in place in order to keep that risk low and make the event safer in the context of that low community spread.
2: I mean there's a terrible like time varying confounding problem here because one of the reasons why you have those policies or people are doing these things or people are acting concerned is because they're responding to the amount of covid they think is circulating and people don't always have the best information even on that you know we're we're all a little bit behind in knowing that and I think some people you know people just aren't aren't very good I think on their own at determining what the risk level might be in their county on a particular day.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's something that we very much, you know, you can't really account for in this analysis, but, but certainly matters a lot. The, the, the only other thing that, that I thought was interesting was here is, you know, you sort of we've talked about this idea of it being an instrumental variable analysis. The idea of the instrumental variable being you have a birthday, the birthday causes you to have a a birthday party. And because birthday is unconfounded, not related to those other risk factors, then we can use the birthday as a proxy for birthday party, even though we know not everyone who has a birthday has a birthday party. And we could use that to sort of get at the causal relationship. But it assumes, of course, that, that the only, well, I shouldn't say that, if it's a true instrumental variable, we're assuming that there is some mechanism and the mechanism is birthday party. Yep. But I, I would suspect, well, that's probably the main mechanism there. There could be others. I would suspect people are more likely to travel around their their birthday to go and visit relatives or you know even if they're not having a, a, a gathering, they may just sort of be traveling from place to place. Now, I don't think that, you know, invalidates this study in any way. It's just sort of something else that occurred to me.
2: Yeah, I was a little bit curious about whether they would define their exposure the real exposure they were getting at as small household gathering or mm-hmm. more just like birthday activities. So some people, you know, might go to the bar for their birthday. That's not like a small household gathering or like you said travel or, you know, do other things.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I and I so I therefore I think, you know, there's probably a, you know, it, the the main thing to me, like, it seems to me very clear from this study that there clearly is some effect of having a birthday, likely through small gatherings, but, but also probably through other things. To me, the key thing here is in how you go about sort of going from the results of this study to what is the take home message. And there, I just think you need to be a little careful in the interpretation. But overall, I, I just thought it was a, a really cool study. And I, I, I really enjoyed this one.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree.
1: All right. So why don't we move on then to our second segment, which is our deep dive, where we wanted to to talk about we are three epidemiologists. And during the course of the pandemic, so many schools of public health were forced to transition to online teaching. And there was a, a nice article, I thought, in the American Journal of Epidemiology entitled Teaching Epidemiology Pandemic Edition written by Haley Bannick, Katie Lesko, Brian Wickcomb, and Lindsay Kobayashi which you know sort of talked about some of the challenges around transitioning to online learning specifically for epidemiologists. We can talk about that or we can we can broaden a little bit, but I'm want to use the the article as sort of a jumping off point to talk a little bit about just your experiences with online teaching during the pandemic. So I'm going to go into the assumption that you you both did do some online teaching and, you know, want to get your reaction to the article and your, you know, just your general thoughts and experiences with online teaching. So, Bertha, I'll, talk, I'll start with you. Tell, tell us about your experiences and, and any reactions you had.
0: Goodness, this this article really spoke to me <laughs> because I had a class that I teach in the spring that in 2019 was in person we were in this tiny library where we were able to squeeze about 40 to 50 people indoors for a two-hour seminar once a week, didactic style, but also conversation. So people in the class also would have an opportunity to speak we were, we were, I know this is in early 2020. So we were learning about SARS-CoV-2 as we were in this class sitting huddled together. (laughs) Uh And then very quickly had to, you know, in March, move online and complete the course online. The course was then taught also online this year. And I got really positive feedback. People really liked the online version compared to the in-class version in large part because people felt like they had the flexibility to be other places. And I have MDs and, you know, PhDs in my course and some were on service. And because of the COVID surge, you know, they they were unable to be in the room for two hours on a given Wednesday. So that worked really well. But I teach another course quantitative methods and epidemiology every summer that was originally online. And because people did not want to be in the classroom because we had so many more people enrolling in programs of public health Mm. and for whatever other reasons, my class went from 30 students to a hundred students. And it really impacted the way that I taught this course, which is an integration of SAS programming, biostatistics, and epidemiologic applied principles. So that was a challenge for sure.
1: And let me just ask, do you, I mean, were there any, are there any lessons that you feel like you learned from teaching online that you, things that you want to keep? Or was it really just sort of a, a challenging situation that you had to adapt to, but, you know, ready to go back to in person and, you know, the way things were?
0: I think this article really highlights in a in a detailed way what the advantages and disadvantages are of online teaching and that's also what I what called me to it was that I experienced many of those advantages and disadvantages in my own teaching. And I think a lot of it depends on the type of course that you're teaching. Mm -hmm. So for my online quantitative methods course, where people need to learn SAS programming, they need to talk to people and hear I think in person, sometimes how you are interpreting results, how you're walking through the results that you get from the SAS or R or whatever software you're using that in that case, smaller numbers online may work because you're able to give feedback in a timely but also more detailed fashion. When you have 100 students, it's really hard to accomplish that Mm -hmm. when you're assigning homeworks and midterms and whatever. And so for that course, I think the online format worked to some extent, but it wasn't ideal. For the other course where you have more didactic, conversational style formats. I think for that, the online format works really well.
1: Mm. Okay, interesting, because I had slightly different experience, but I'll I'll talk about that in a minute. Rachel, what okay. about you?
2: So, you know, I teach a, an EPI 1. We have semesters here at the University of Minnesota. I teach an EPI 1 course in the fall and an EPI 2 course in the spring, and both are big courses. Our EPI 2 course this past spring had 90 students in it, So, you know, it's a a lot of little squares on that screen. We were entirely online. Uh, We weren't hybrid. Everything was online for the whole year. And there were a few things that that I noticed. On the pro side, I noticed that I think it's easier for students to ask questions in a Zoom chat box Mm. in a 90-person class than it is to raise their hand. So I think that was a real advantage for students, having kind of another way to ask questions during class. Mm -hmm. A problem that I had was, I think that the lack of them being together and being in the student lounge and just sort of having lots of interactions really hampered their problem solving abilities. So I was Getting questions this year that I feel like I hadn't gotten in previous years that I'm assuming that in the past students worked together on their homeworks and and figured it out or Googled it or I don't know. And I, I just felt like I really noticed their lack of social interaction, real live social interactions coming through in other ways. So mm. that that I think was a, a really, really big downside. Another thing that was going on, I'm sure this is true for everyone across the country. This was a really stressful year, the, the yeah. COVID and the election. And here in Minneapolis, we had another layer of yeah. stress. And it's its really hard to describe what it's been like living in Minneapolis in the last year. Really, really difficult. The verdict of the Chauvin trial was released while I was teach, like during my Epi 2 class. I mean, mm-hmm. it was... There's, there was just so much going on and we all and the students had the weight of the world on them. And so one thing that I did this year that I probably should have done years ago was I really took a look at my assessments and tried to spread them out some more and and, and make more of them so that things weren't as high stakes. Because I, I was like, how can I minimize the stress of this year? And, you know, one thing I I added this year was I did a weekly quiz on the reading and they were easy quizzes. They were multiple choice on our online learning system. So they were automatically graded. You know, the kids could take them twice if they wanted. I was like, this is just going to be a weekly easy point for them and it's going to help them read and it's going to help them build confidence. And and I wasn't sure how it would go. I was like, you know, our students going to be like, oh, no, more stuff. But it ended up working out really well. And I think it did diffuse stress a lot. Mm -hmm. And while I associate it with it being this virtual year, it's certainly something that, that I hope to continue doing. I mean, you know, we're still using the, the here we use canvas, uh, you know, other places they use Moodle or whatever, but, um, you know, it, it, it was just something that, that I thought helped the difficult situation a lot.
1: Yep. It's so interesting. I had very similar experiences to you both and in, in very many ways. To me, the biggest take home from this whole experience of teaching online was online education can actually work now mm-hmm. that we've all you know sort of been through this experience. And I don't want to do it. And it's not that I don't mean that in the sense of like, I'm I'm I i don't want to continue, you know, doing what we're doing now to get students through it. But
2: you're trying to say you quit. You quit your job.
1: I, 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 <laughs> Nick, you're going to need to do some editing to make sure I did not imply that in any way, shape or form. I I miss I miss the in-person interaction. I miss that experience. I, I miss seeing my students, you know having those, you know, sort of conversations before class and just chatting in the hallway. I I just miss the energy of of being in a room. I I completely understand why students, you know, many students turn their cameras off, but it 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 also makes it just harder to have that interaction. So it's just sort of like I I was I came away from this totally convinced it can work and I'm just not sure I want to do it. But I do think there have been a lot of you know, they don't outweigh the negatives, but the po- there have been some real positives. So uh, Rachel, you mentioned like giving students another way to ask questions. Mm-hmm. This is something I've actually been thinking about for years. Like I want to have a little box on the, the screen in my classroom where students could ask questions in real time, but type them instead of ask them because I know they have them and they know that I want to ask them and I wanted them to be anonymous because I know you'll get more questions if they're anonymous and i i've just never figured out a way to do it till now and now i think actually i can i can figure out how to do this you also mentioned assessment you know i this has caused me to reevaluate what i'm doing all these assessments for like mm-hmm. what is the point yeah. of all this it feels like maybe you know the point is to make sure that students are learning but it also feels like part of it might be to just create increased stress for everybody. And that is definitely not what I want to do. So I've, you know, sort of been thinking about, like, I did take-home exams instead of in-person exams for the pandemic. And I'm thinking, like, why would I not just continue that? Like, take the time urgency out of it. Make them open book. Like, when in real life are you ever going to have to take tests to prove what you need? So I I think there was a lot of good that came out of the the sort of the chance to reevaluate.
0: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I, I similarly to Rachel, included quizzes every week. They can take them as many times as they want. It helps their grade, because I know they're always so stressed about their grades in my class. And they don't know this yet, but I plan to make...
1: <laughs> well, they do now.
0: They do now.
1: <laughs> every single one of them is listening to this.
0: <laughs> I plan to make the last homework extra credit and so awesome. um that should completely like rid them of any worries of of you know not doing well in my class but um, that's my goal i just want them to learn i yeah. i'm not there to fail them i'm not there to be their blip and their gpa i just want them to learn and and have you know hopefully have a good time
1: couldn't agree more any any last points anyone wants to raise or, or anything you learned before we move on all right, I will take that as a no, and we will move on to our last segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, where we should of bring in something that is of interest to us that we just wanted to share with the listeners. I will go first because mine is really short, but I was pretty fascinated by this article. I'm trying to remember exactly where the article came from, but they were they were discussing a New York Times article that I don't know if either of you read. But, you know, like going back in time, we, we know there's been so much documentation around the way that the cigarette companies have manipulated both the media, but also have manipulated science over time to try and, you know, obfuscate and, and make it appear as if cigarette smoking is not that bad for you. And then, of course, now we've morphed into the era of Juul and and these, you know, uh, e-cigarettes and things The New York Times wrote this piece about how Juul paid $50,000 to have the entire May-June issue of the American Journal of Health Behavior devoted to 11 studies, which were funded by the company, giving evidence that Juul products help people quit smoking. Now, I, I think there is a very legitimate debate to be had around whether there is benefit to E-cigarettes for helping me quit smoking. I have no opinion, but I think there is a, a legitimate argument. But but the idea that we would have a, a journal give over its you know publication for an entire edition to a, a a company that is selling a product is is amazing to me. Now I don't know the journal, so I don't know if they are a reputable journal to begin with, or whether this is, you know, my, my, my suspicion is it's not. And Rachel, you appear to be confirming that but just the idea that this happened that 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 there was someone who was willing to put a stamp on this is mind-boggling to me so i just i i I thought that was an interesting article just worth highlighting i don't know if either of you had had seen that
2: so i've been following this story on the edge of my seat (laughs) um I the thing that shocks me more than anything was that the American Journal of Health Behavior was that cheap. It was only $50,000.
1: <laughs> that you could buy a whole a whole edition. Although if you're a predatory journal like $51,000 for you to spend probably you know, 1000 is nothing. You know
2: that's a, It's a journal that in the past has had a fine reputation. Okay, so they're not I a predatory was, journal. Well, you know, these days, you know, this, this, this makes me wonder yeah. about that journal in the past few years. I, I was just having a conversation yesterday with a, a substance use research group that I'm a part of, and we were talking about how we've, uh, all of us years ago, but we've all had articles in the American Journal of Health Behavior. It's...
0: Uh,
1: Ugh. Yeah. It's upsetting. It's it an upsetting, upsetting one. Yeah.
0: Yes. And what's sad is that it, this is hard to explain to the public, right? So they hard. already have some mistrust of what gets published mm-hmm. anyway. And then to hear stories like this, I think make them question, well, who else is doing this? And are the papers that, you know, Rachel and Matt are citing and sharing with us as proof that whatever, should those also be questioned? So that yeah. I think is what worries me the most.
1: It's really, it's really concerning. Yep. Yeah. All right, Bertha, what have you got?
0: Oh gosh, I have been following the Simone Biles. Oh yeah. Withdraw pretty closely because, and it's funny because I at the beginning of the call I talked to you about how much I had going on, mm-hmm. and it really gave me pause, you know to think that you, you, that I <laughs> am unwilling to, to take that pause and say I really am not in a place to perform at my best and I, and I need to step back and and it was just kind of eye-opening. I think it, it really gave me great perspective. And so I, I really admire her for doing that for her team but also for herself.
1: I could not agree more. I, I I cannot believe that there has been. I mean, I guess I I sort of understand people are always gonna, you know, re- react negatively because they feel somehow they are owed Simone Biles, you know, a, a competition. But I, you know, to me, like the 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 benefits of her just sort of you know recognizing her limits and and saying you know I'm not uh, you know I'm not here to just perform for you it to me is is amazing
0: yes and that her score could potentially bring the whole team down right exactly. and then i think that was the big point was that it and it's not highlighted i as as strongly i think in the media but she realized if she continued to perform the way she was her overall scores could bring down the potential of them getting even that silver medal and that she didn't want to do that to the team
1: i agree i it, i i just think that the 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 benefits are you know we're we're going to be we're going to be having this conversation for a while and i and i hope that point that you just raised continues to come out
0: yeah me too
1: awesome great 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 one to to talk through rachel what about you
2: well i was just thinking about you know the new cdc announcements earlier in the week updating some of their recommendations mm for COVID and COVID prevention. And this internal report that the Washington Post released yesterday, which called the Delta variant as contagious as chickenpox, And so I was just sort of thinking about chicken pox a bit and thinking about how very few or a, a decent segment of at least people in this country don't have that much personal experience with chicken pox anymore. And I was thinking about my own Chicken pox, it was sort of my first experience with (laughs) isolation. I think I was five years old. I had chicken pox. I remember being so bummed out. I thought, you know, I was finally not sick. And then the rash came out and then I still couldn't go to school. And I was so bummed that my parents were making me stay home. And and I remember that a bunch of my family actually came to town. It must have been a planned trip. Uncles and my aunts and my grandparents. And we were all going to go out to dinner. And I remember my mom and dad telling me that that I'd have to, that one of them, I think, stayed home with me and everyone else was going out and and I felt so bad. And I remember saying, you know, but mom, dad, you know, all the grownups have had chicken pox. I can go out. And I remember my mom saying, but what if like the waiter, like there's some grownups that haven't, what if the waiter hadn't had chicken pox? You can't go out. Yet. And so it was just sort of, uh, you know, just uh, all these thoughts together, like remembering like, oh, yeah, that was kind of my first personal experience with some of the things that we're all dealing with as a society now. And also just thinking about, you know, how... Are people in the U.S. interpreting this headline that Delta is as contagious as chicken pox? Uh, people that are younger than me are, are probably like, chickenpox. who cares? No one gets that. What's that?
1: <laughs> I I think you're so right. I think we most people have no experience with chicken pox. I, uh, so I, I have to tell my chicken pox story now, which is that my best friend got chicken pox. And, you know, those days, chicken pox parties were the thing. So I went and played with my friend who has chicken pox, I know I have it. This was like a week before, uh, like two weeks before uh, Halloween. And oh. I was fine by, by the time Halloween rolled around, except both my friend and I gave it to our siblings. So they were sick during Halloween. Oh. So the two of us went out and we would go door to door and we would say, could I have an extra piece of candy? for my sister or his kid brother because they they have chickenpox and they can't come which was fine except that every once in a while we would get separated and so then like he would go to the door and he would give the story and then I would show up like 5 minutes later and they'd be like wait a minute I've heard that story before <laughs> you're just trying to get extra candy so chickenpox stay has stayed with me
2: Oh, that's so nice you got extra candy for your siblings. I'm
1: pretty sure it was not my idea. (laughs) I would love to think that it was my idea, but I'm pretty sure it was not.
0: Oh, That was very nice.
1: (laughs) Well, I appreciate that one. That's a good one to good one for us to think about. So that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback or this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at Pop X or you can tweet me at, at Prop Mad Fox or Rachel at R R W I D O M E or Bertha at, at Bertha Hidalgo at B-E-R-T-H-A-H-I-D-A-L-G-O or Don at at theo one or Chris at ID.Gill. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. I want to thank both of our fantastic guests for, for pinch hitting for our regular hosts. So thank you both for joining us.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. This was super fun. It was super a lot fun. of fun.
1: We also want to thank Leslie Talali an Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound editing and all of the other amazing things that he does in coaching us through getting these recordings done. Thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode.